We are in Matthew chapter 26 today, continuing our look at these final events of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And we're going to start at verse 36 today, uh, Jesus' time in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. But to begin in the right way, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. So if you bow your heads in prayer, please. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. So let's go ahead and read verses 36 through 46. If we finish this section, we'll go on to the next. But um, there's a lot here. This is a very meaty section of Matthew's gospel. So we read these words. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. The them here would be the disciples. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 26, if you will, and turn back toward the beginning of the Bible to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. And I just want to reflect for a moment on an event that is familiar, I think, to everybody. Uh, it is the story of Moses' call to be the liberator of the children of Israel, the Hebrew people, who were, of course, making bricks without straw in Egypt. They were slaves of the Egyptians. And this is the story of the calling of Moses. We're going to start at chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And the Lord said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. 
I simply bring that to your attention because if you turn back now to Matthew chapter 26, as we come to this particular event in Jesus' life, his time in the Garden of Gethsemane, there is a sense in which you and I are standing on holy ground. Uh, we all celebrate Jesus' birth at the time of Christmas, the message of the incarnation, the, the miraculous circumstances surrounding the Lord's arrival uh, in this world. Uh, we celebrate at Easter, of course, his death and his glorious resurrection, and the miraculous events that took place surrounding uh, the Easter event. But between those two events, between the Lord's birth and between his death and his resurrection, Jesus, for the most part, lived a somewhat ordinary life. Now, when I say ordinary, we all acknowledge the fact that Jesus did amazing things. He performed great miracles and signs and wonders and all of that. But what I mean by that is that Jesus lived an ordinary human life. He became hungry just as we become hungry. He became thirsty just as we become thirsty. And he became sorrowful. And that's what we see happening here in the Garden of Gethsemane. There is a sense in which we see Jesus, and I'm somewhat hesitant to even use the language, but there is a sense in which we see Jesus here as vulnerable as possible. Conscious of the fact of the, the, the message that Jesus is fully God and fully human, nevertheless, we see Jesus, at least from a worldly point of view, in a particularly vulnerable position. We see his full humanity on display. And there is a sense in which we need to be reverent because there is a sorrow here, but it is a sorrow unlike any sorrow you and I have ever known. This is indeed holy ground. And many commentators acknowledge this fact. Um, it was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who once said, here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is the subject of prayerful, heartbroken meditation more than for human language. Now, that is quite extraordinary when you consider the fact that uh, Charles Spurgeon preached for over 30 years, and he preached on every aspect of Jesus' life. But when it came to this particular section, Jesus' time alone with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, his agony there prior to the cross, Spurgeon says, we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life. William Barclay, the Scottish commentator who wrote a whole series of books on the Gospels and the New Testament writings, said something very similar. He said, surely this is a passage that we must approach on our knees. And a contemporary scholar, D.A. Carson, Put it this way, he said, as his death was unique, so also was his anguish, and our best response to it is hushed worship. So we approach these events and the agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with great reverence. Like Moses, we are in the presence of sacred things. We are in the presence of God Almighty, revealed in a way that the world had never seen. And there is a sense in which, standing on this holy ground, we should take off our shoes and reverence the moment. And yet, even though Spurgeon said this is a subject of prayerful, heartbroken meditation more than for human language, we mustn't forget that all of Scripture, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, is written for our learning. So we want to come here with hushed reverence, but at the same time, we have to acknowledge that this event in the Garden of Gethsemane is meant to teach us something. 
And today, at least, I want to suggest to you two lessons that you and I should take away from this time with Jesus in the garden prior to his arrest. The first thing is to remember that Jesus was indeed truly human. Uh, sometimes we can fall into the trap of thinking that Jesus, because he was the Son of God, because he entered this world in miraculous circumstances, because he performed all of these signs and wonders, there is a sense in which he was not like us. But the author of Hebrews makes it very clear, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. But we have one, he says, who has been tempted in every way, just as we have been, except without sin. That is to say, every struggle, every difficulty, every doubt, every temptation that you and I have faced, there is a sense in which the Son of God faced those as well. And this is why Peter says we can cast our cares on him. Why? Because we know he cares for us. This really, if the truth be known, and I'm going to bring this out on Christmas Eve, but truth be known, this is the real message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is not merely that a baby was born, as marvelous as that may be, but that this particular babe was born, the one who was the unique God-man. And so while we certainly want to celebrate Jesus' divinity, and certainly the prolegomena to John's gospel does that, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then you skip ahead to the 14th verse, and he says this. It's an extraordinary statement, and he says, And that word, which was God, which was with God at the beginning, through whom and by whom all things were made, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, whenever you hear the word flesh in the Bible, in the New Testament, the Greek word is sarx. It means what you and I got up with. It's what we bathed. It's what some of us shaved this morning. And it is always a sign of weakness. It's a sign of frailty. That's what Jesus is saying here when he speaks to the disciples about not praying with him, but falling asleep. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The mystery of the incarnation is that at one point in time and space, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the creator of the cosmos came down. We say it in the creed. He came down from heaven and he took on human flesh, and he struggled with all of the things that we struggle with. Now, Jesus' humanity is highlighted at any number of points in the gospel accounts. It's right there at the very beginning when we begin to talk about his birth in Bethlehem. It was a perfectly natural birth. The conception, of course, was miraculous. We're told that the Virgin Mary was overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit, but the birth itself it's almost incorrect to call it the virgin birth. It's really the virginal conception. That's what's miraculous. The birth itself, we can assume, according to the Bible, was like any other birth. It was a messy birth. If you've ever been present when a baby is born, and I've been there four times, it's a messy business. We can assume that Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, was nursed at his mother's breast like any other baby in that time period. So he was a real baby, and, and he was dependent upon his mother for his very life and well-being. The scripture goes on to say in Luke chapter 2 that he, as he grew in age, grew in wisdom and grew in stature, in the same way that children today grow in wisdom and stature with the passing of the years. 
In Matthew chapter 4, we're told that Jesus hungered. At the time of his temptation in the wilderness, we're told that he hungered. That's why the devil came to him and said, well, if you're hungry, turn these stones into bread. So we know that Jesus hungered in the same way that you and I hungered. He grew in wisdom and stature in the way that you and I grow in wisdom and stature. He became thirsty from time to time. We have that marvelous story of the Samaritan woman at the well, and Jesus goes and asks her for a drink. We know that from time to time, Jesus even became weary. He became tired. He was asleep in the stern of the boat when the disciples were caught on that terrible storm on the Sea of Galilee. We know that Jesus became frustrated. A lot of times he would say to his disciples, how much longer must I be with you until you understand these things? He became angry. When he drove the money changers out of the temple precincts, we're told that on one occasion he did it with a whip. So there is a sense in which Jesus was very much like us in every respect. The mystery of the incarnation, again, is not that Jesus was part God and part man. Now, this is a very high mathematics, but we need to understand that the mystery of the incarnation is that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully human. Not 90% and 10% or 80-20 or 60-40 or whatever it may be. No, he was 100% human and subject to all of the hurts and the pains and the sorrows that we are subject to. And that's what makes this particular event, this time in which Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, particularly powerful. Because we see him here experiencing a sorrow, a sorrow that is like ours. And yet a sorrow that, in another respect, is nothing like ours. Uh, Jesus, by this point, as you know, had left the upper room where he had shared that last meal with his disciples. Judas Iscariot had been revealed as the betrayer, and he had gone out into the night. Jesus, having left that upper room, presumably was on his way back to Bethany. We've already noticed that Jesus was not staying in Jerusalem. Uh, he was traveling back and forth to the city from the village of Bethany, which is really only a suburb of Jerusalem today. It's just right outside. Uh, this was the place where he, of course, had raised Lazarus from the dead. He's probably staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus during this time in Jerusalem, this, this time of the Passover. And he passes out of the city of Jerusalem. He goes probably out the Golden Gate, goes down through what is known as the Kidron Valley. Those of you who've been to the Holy Land, you know where it is. The Kidron Valley is that area between the city on the one hand and the Mount of Olives on the other. And having crossed that Kidron Valley, Jesus begins to make the ascent up the Mount of Olives, and he comes to an olive grove. That's really what the Garden of Gethsemane was. It wasn't a fruit garden or a flower garden or anything like that. It was an olive grove. And there are still olive trees there today. You're going to find this extraordinary. But there are olive trees there today that are 2,000 years old. So there are trees on this earth that are actually here, present at the time that Jesus bore this agony in the garden. Perhaps they were witnesses, if you will, witness trees um, to these events. At any rate, Jesus goes up into this garden of Gethsemane, and he pauses there in this quiet space to pray. And he takes two of his disciples with him, along with Peter, he takes Peter, James, and John. Incidentally, these were the three men who had beheld his glory 
up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he takes them aside and he asks them to watch with him and to pray. And we're told that Jesus went off three times by himself and prayed to the Father. And what he's asking the Father to do is to remove the cup. Now, this is where we really see, as I see, Jesus' full humanity. The Lord had already revealed to his disciples, and we've seen this several times in the Gospel of Matthew, he's already revealed to his disciples the fact that he must go to Jerusalem and die. He must be betrayed into the hands of his enemies, and that he is going to be executed by order of the Gentiles. Jesus had told his disciples this over and over again. In fact, you'll recall on the first occasion, Peter had rebuked the Lord and said, God forbid this must never happen to you. So we know that the disciples had been forewarned, and furthermore, we know that Jesus was aware that this is why he had come into the world in the first place. He understood what his mission in the world was, and yet here we are on the cusp of the fulfillment of that great mission, and Jesus is going to the Father in great sorrow, torment of soul, and asking that this cup might be removed. So we see his humanity. We see his sorrow. We have all faced things in our life that we have asked the Lord to remove. Help us to avoid that, Lord, the sorrow, the pain, the disappointment, whatever it may be. And we see Jesus doing the same thing. So as I said, his sorrow is like ours, but yet there's a sense in which his sorrow is not like ours. It's because he understands what his mission will actually entail. The closer he gets to the fulfillment of that mission, the more he realizes the cost entailed. Look at how he describes it here. Verse 38, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. I am so filled with agony and anxiety about what is about to happen that I'm almost at the point of death itself already. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, it's very interesting that Jesus uses that particular expression, a cup. He doesn't describe it as, let this event pass from me. He describes it as a cup, a cup that must be drunk. Now, the question is, why does he do that? Well, it's because that is a phrase that is filled with biblical, particularly Old Testament, meaning. And this is the real reason why Jesus is filled with such overwhelming sorrow. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 26 and skip back, if you will, to Psalm 75, where you get a picture of what the cup represents to Jesus and what it represents in the Bible. Psalm 75. We're going to take a look beginning at, let's say, verse 2. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. That is God speaking. I will judge with equity. I'm going to bring justice to the world. I'm going to bring judgment on upon a sinful and rebellious humanity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. 
For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. And here's the crucial verse. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup, a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. It is a cup of foaming wine, and the wicked of the earth, who exalt themselves, who puff themselves up, the psalmist says they will be forced to drink that cup to its dregs. What does that cup represent? It represents the judgment of God the wrath of God upon a sinful humanity. Keep your finger um, in Matthew still. You've got 10 fingers or at least eight fingers and two thumbs, so I'm counting on that. And turn, if you will, to Romans chapter one, where Paul describes God's attitude toward humanity. Romans chapter one, beginning at verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that men are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. The language that is used here by Paul is the language of a prisoner exchange. You're handing them over to the enemy, if you will. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator who is forever blessed. And the rest of the chapter is this downhill spiral that man embarks upon until he reaches the very bottom. And it's because of that rebellious nature that God is bringing forth a wrath well, that's what the psalmist means when he talks about a cup of foaming wine. It is the wrath of God. It is the judgment of God. As Jesus contemplated the prospect of his death on the morrow, something that he knew he'd been sent into the earth to do, he nevertheless acknowledges the fact that what he is facing is not just physical punishment. That in and of itself would be bad enough, but that would be temporary. The thing that filled Jesus was sorrow, even to the point of death, even to the point where the Son of God himself needed the support and the encouragement of his friends. The thing that really filled Jesus was such anxiety was the prospect of enduring the wrath of Almighty God. We need to understand that while Jesus' sorrow is like ours, in this respect, it is not like ours. I pointed out to you last week that passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which I, says is, which I said was really a summation of the gospel. God made him who knew no sin 
to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You'll notice that it doesn't say God made him to be a sinner. Jesus never sinned. It doesn't say that God made him to be a sinner or that God made him to sin. It said God made him sin. When Jesus mounted the arms of the cross, all of the guilty acts of all mankind, past, present, and future, were all heaped upon him. That's why we can say in the Eucharistic prayer, his was a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. But in that moment, all the transgressions of all mankind, every foul, evil deed that is deserving of punishment and death, all of that was heaped upon Christ himself. And he would have to drink that cup to its bitter dregs for your salvation and for mine. Now, that's something the disciples could in no way at this point understand or even begin to comprehend. But we, post-crucifixion, post-Easter, understand at least a little bit of what it was that Jesus was facing. You know, there is a sense in which you and I came into this world not in fellowship with God. Uh, we were all born OS positive, as I like to say. We were all born with original sin. And so we were all, there is a sense in which we've all been separated from God. The message of the gospel is that we can be reunited to him. We can be one with Christ. But Jesus Christ, as the second person of the Trinity, had never known a moment in all of eternity let alone in his earthly life and existence where he had not been in full fellowship with the other two persons of the triune Godhead. And yet we're told that as Jesus was hanging there upon the cross, we're told that the Father turned his face away and Jesus felt absolutely abandoned, forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, Jesus was sin personified. He had to endure the wrath of God. And that, of course, is what John is saying in his first epistle when he says that he became the propitiation for our sins. Those are the words of the um, comfortable words on Sunday after the confession of sins. The old 1928 prayer book actually preserved that particular phrase, propitiation, that particular term. Uh, we use the word atoning sacrifice but it really means propitiation. It means to turn aside the wrath of God. It's, it's like you are standing in front of a firing squad. You are going to be punished for your wicked deeds. There is this firing squad. Everybody's guns are loaded. They are pointed at you. And the officer raises his sword, ready to give the order to fire. And all of a sudden, somebody steps between you and those loaded guns, and takes the punishment on himself. That is what Jesus Christ did there on the cross. And it was not just a suffering of the physical agony. It was an utter and complete separation. He was the cursed of the damned for you and for me. And that's what Jesus was experiencing there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's why there is a sense in which this is indeed holy ground. This is sacred. And we need to reverence it.
He was tempted and suffered in every way, just as we have been. And yet his sorrow, his sorrow was nothing like yours and mine. So that's one lesson that we learn. And it is something that indeed, if you think about it, will drive you to your knees. It will fill you with a sense of gratitude. You'd have to have a cold heart to really contemplate these things, to really understand them. You would have to have a dead stone cold heart not to give thanks to God for what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. But I think there is a second lesson that we can learn from this particular section of Matthew's gospel and this particular event. And that is the importance of prayer in times of distress. It's interesting, isn't it? As Jesus was contemplating what was about to happen to him in only a few hours, the thing that he did in his time of great distress is that he went and he poured out his heart. He poured out his sorrow, his concerns, his anxieties to the Father. And if nothing else, that teaches us that in times of great distress, that's the best thing that we can do. In times of distress, the best thing to do is not panic, but pray. Now, let me give you an illustration of this, biblically speaking, from the Old Testament. We spend most of our time in the New Testament, but there are a lot of events in the Old Testament that are very helpful and illustrative of the way we should live our lives as believers. And there's a great example of this in 2 Kings. So if you will, turn to the Old Testament. I'll give you some time to get there. 2 Kings, it's fairly early on in the Old Testament. We're going to turn to 2 Kings chapter 19. It's a point in history when we are told that the Assyrian Empire was on the rise. Assyrian Empire became a very powerful empire. And at this point, the leader of the Assyrian Empire was a king by the name of Sennacherib. All right. And Sennacherib is bringing... He has just rolled over one empire after another, very much like what the Germans did when they rolled through uh, Danzig and on into France and so forth. You have a similar picture. That's what the Assyrians were doing at this point in history. And the next target on their list was the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, which at this point in history was ruled by a righteous king by the name of Hezekiah. Now, if you read through First and Second Kings, you get a whole list of the monarchs of Israel and Judah. And one of the things that becomes very clear is that most of those monarchs were wicked people. They were evil people. It almost gets monotonous after a while because it'll say so-and-so begat so-and-so, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. And he begat so-and-so, and he likewise did evil in the sight of the Lord, just as his father had done. And it goes on and on like that, generation after generation after a generation. But from time to time, there will be a bright light in the midst of it all. Somebody like Josiah, for example, who brought about a great reform in the nation. And here is one of those bright lights. His name is Hezekiah. Now, what happens is the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, comes up against Judah and he encircles, besieges the city. It's very interesting. There is actually a monument 
today in the British Museum that records this event, which records this event. It's an ancient, it's again, it testifies to the reliability of the biblical record. But what it says is that Sennacherib locked up Hezekiah in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. So that's the situation here, all right? And as an attempt to intimidate the king of Judah, we're told that Sennacherib sent him a letter detailing all of his exploits and all of the other nations and city-states that had been conquered by the Assyrians. And basically what he's saying is, I'm giving you terms of unconditional surrender. Give up right now, or what's happened to all the rest will happen to you. Now, the Assyrian Empire is mighty, it's powerful, they've got vast troops, Judah is locked up, Hezekiah is there in the city of Jerusalem, as I said, like a bird in a cage, and he receives this letter from the king of Assyria, basically like General Grant at Fort Donelson, Fort Henry and Donelson, unconditional surrender, that's the idea here. We'll take a look at 2 Kings Chapter 19, beginning at verse 14. Take a look at what the king of Judah did in this time of great distress and pressure. Hezekiah received the letter from the land of the messengers, hand of the messengers, and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. You can almost see him going up to the temple and pulling out that letter and laying, as it were, on the altar, giving it over, handing his situation over to the Lord. You know, you might expect he's the king of the nation. What is he going to do? It's his responsibility to defend his people. You would expect him to act, but the first thing he does, we're told, is he goes up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands. And they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God and one. Now you may be wondering, well, what happened? He poured out his concern. He poured out his heart to the Lord. What happened? Did the Lord deliver them? Well, skip ahead. Verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all the dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. 
Now, the point of all of this is simply to highlight the fact that in times of difficulty, you and I need to take our concerns to the Lord. We need to take our concerns to him like Hezekiah and pour it out. And my goodness, that is exactly what we see Jesus himself doing. My goodness, if, if Jesus himself in times of crisis was willing to pour out his concerns to the Father, why should we not follow the example of the Son of God himself? Now, there are a number of things that we can learn from Jesus' prayer here in the Garden of Gethsemane. In addition to the fact that we should pray, we learn how to pray as well. And this is where things get very practical. You'll notice how Jesus prays. Verse 39, and going up a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The first thing is this, Jesus addresses God, who is the exalted one, the transcendent one the creator of the cosmos, he has such an intimate relationship with God that he refers to him as father. The real word here is an interesting word. Um, it's the word Abba, and that is preserved elsewhere in the scriptures. Jesus, for example, teaches his disciples to pray saying, our father, Abba. That is such an intimate term that the Hebrew or the Aramaic term is preserved here in the Greek text. It was a term of great intimacy. It would be comparable, although it's even more intimate than this, it's comparable to calling God daddy. So it's not just some sort of father in the sense that George Washington is the father of the nation. It's an intimate term of affection. It implies a unique, intimate relationship. Now, there are a couple of things that we learn from that. First of all is this, that is how you and I are to pray. We are to address our prayers to God as our Father. Now, that's not to say that we can't pray to the other persons of the Trinity, uh, to the Son, to Jesus himself directly, or to the Holy Spirit. Of course we can, they are all part of the triune Godhead. But that term Father does imply that he is the one who initiates our salvation. Every, poor, every person of the Trinity has a role to play but it is the Father who initiates our salvation. And furthermore, it teaches us that it requires a relationship with God in order to be heard. I would say probably not one prayer in a thousand is actually addressed to God himself. Back in the 19th century, a newspaper recorded a prayer that was, ushered, or that was uttered by a Boston clergyman. And here's how the newspaper described it. It was the most eloquent prayer ever offered to a Boston audience. Think about that. It was the most eloquent prayer ever offered to a Boston audience. And you know, many of the prayers that people usher, offer, offer up are just like that. How about that prayer that the Pharisee, Jesus told in his parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple when they were praying. And the Pharisee said, to himself. Oh Lord, I am so happy that I'm not like other men. I, I tithe the tenth of everything that I receive. I'm kind to the, to the poor and to the brokenhearted, and I'm so happy that I'm not like that tax collector over there. It's interesting that Jesus said he stood and he prayed with or to himself. 
In order for a prayer to truly be heard, we need to realize that we are in the presence of God Almighty. And the only way that God is going to hear us is if we have a relationship with him. Understand this. Prayer, my friends, is a privilege, but it is a privilege for those who are in communion, in fellowship with God. The best way I can describe this was that um, years ago, when I was the rector at St. David's Church in Tyrol, we had a day school, and my eldest son at the time was a little boy. He was only about um, two, and he was in that day school. And I would sometimes walk through the hallway and all the children would see me and they had been taught to call me Father Jeff. So the little children would wave and they would cry out, oh, there goes Father Jeff, Father Jeff. But there was one little boy who would cry out, hi, daddy. And then he would turn to his classmates and he says, you have to call him Father Jeff, but I get to call him daddy. He had an intimate relationship with me that the others did not have. And so if we want our prayers to be heard, we need to recognize that a relationship with God is necessary. That's the first thing. Second practical thing that we learn about how to pray is that effective prayer is always according to God's will. That's one of the things that Jesus acknowledges here. He asks that the cup may be removed, but nevertheless, he says, not my will, but thine be done. You know, Prayer is not something that you and I can use as a weapon or as a means of controlling the immutable mind of God. You know, we sometimes think, well, if we just, if we're persistent enough in prayer, like the widow, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of wear God down. That's not the idea here at all. Jesus prays in accordance with the will of the Father. Now, he acknowledges the fact that he'd come into the world to pay the price for sin. If there's another way of doing that, he asks the human part of him, he asks that that might be accomplished. But nevertheless, he says, he is willing to be obedient to the Lord's will. We say the same, this is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And we say the same thing every time we say the Lord's prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, so often when we say thy will be done, what we really mean is my will be done. But Jesus was willing to put God's plan, God's purposes, God's desires before his own. And that's what we should all be seeking. Why? Because God's ways are higher than our ways as the mountains are higher than the seas. God knows the beginning from the end. And his plans for us are for good. There may be a time of sorrow. There may be sorrow in the night, but joy comes in the morning. Now, how do you know that you're praying in accordance with God's will? You only know that if you're in his word. Jesus had such an intimate relationship with the Father that he knew exactly what the Father's will was. And that's one of the reasons why he was willing to trust the Father. Uh, you've probably seen those bumper stickers or those little bracelets that say, WWJD, what would Jesus do? I'll be honest with you. I've always thought those were a little trite. Because if you are living in a right relationship with God, if you are studying his word, you know exactly what Jesus would do. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to do it. But if you are thinking with the mind of Christ, you know exactly what you should do. 
So when we pray, we need to have a relationship with God. We need to pray to the Father, knowing that he is the one who initiates our salvation. In order for our prayer to be effective, we need to pray in accordance with God's will. We want his will to be done on earth and in our lives, not our own will. We're acknowledging the fact that Father does know best in this particular instance. And here's the third thing. We must be persistent in prayer. You'll notice that Jesus prayed there in the Garden of Gethsemane. We don't know exactly how many hours he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, but it was some time because the disciples kept drifting off into sleep and Jesus would have to come and wake them back up again. He was there for some time, but we're told that three times, three times he went and made that petition to the Father. He was persistent. Now, as I said just a moment ago, that persistence is not meant to imply that you and I by our tenacity, can somehow change the mind of God. That's not the idea here at all. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it's not so much a case where prayer changes God as it is that prayer changes us. Let me give you a great example of this. Turn to 2 Corinthians, right in your Bible. You're in Matthew, so you're going to go through the rest of the Gospels. Mark, Luke, and John, then Acts, then Romans, then 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So 2nd Corinthians chapter 12. This is a little autobiographical information from the hand of the Apostle Paul himself. Now, Paul is talking about his own struggles. And he talks about his thorn in the flesh. And here's what he says, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, that is the things that have been revealed to me by God, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Now, over the centuries, a whole lot of ink has been spilled over this subject. What was Paul's particular thorn in the flesh? All kinds of ideas have been put forward. I think what we can assume is that it was something physical. I don't think it was something emotional necessarily, because he uses the term flesh. And it's the same word that we've been talking about earlier. It's the word sarks. It, it means skin, basically. So he was given some sort of a thorn, something that was a torment to him in his flesh. Some people have suggested, for example, that Paul was suffering from failing eyesight, because in some of his letters he says, see what great letters I write with. In the ancient world, oftentimes somebody like Paul would dictate his letter to a scribe, the scribe would write it out, but then the author, not the writer, but the author would actually sign himself at the bottom of the letter. So Paul would have a scribe, he would dictate to the scribe, the scribe who was trained and had good handwriting, penmanship, would go ahead and write the letter, and then Paul, as the author, would sign it himself. And he says, see with what great letters I sign this letter. So some have suggested that perhaps Paul was suffering from eyesight trouble. Maybe he had macular degeneration or something like that. We really don't know. What we do know is that Paul found it to be troublesome to him. It was troublesome for him. He felt that it was an impediment to his ministry. Every indicator suggests to us that Paul was a very active individual, he was the kind of individual who would like to be on the go. He was robust. He was strong. And whatever this thorn was, it was an impediment to him. It was, it was making his life and his ministry difficult. And we're told that three times 
verse eight, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But verse nine, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul goes on, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of all my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Something happened here, and it wasn't that Paul's petitions changed God. But as he petitioned the Lord, what happened was that his prayers actually changed him. And he realized that his weakness could actually be used by God in a way that was even greater than his strengths. In his weakness, God be, could be glorified in a greater way than if he had remained strong and robust. Well, you see something like this with Jesus in Matthew chapter 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see Jesus going in that first prayer to the Father, and he asks that this cup be removed. Look at verse 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. If it be possible. That's like saying, if it can pass, let it be so. If it's possible. But look at verse 42. While the prayer is similar, <laughs> there is a slight change here. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass, <coughs> excuse me. You see, the first time he says, if it's possible, if it can pass, let it be so. But having prayed about it, he's beginning to sense that the father is saying it cannot and that's why in the second petition, he changes from can to if it cannot pass. Now, unfortunately, the third petition is not revealed to us. We're not told, other than the fact that Jesus went and prayed in similar words. But I think what we can safely surmise is that by that point, Jesus had resigned himself to the fact that the Father's will was set he was going to have to endure this tremendous sorrow, this agony, this wrath of the cross. And I think we can assume that having accepted that finally, having heard the Father, he now prayed for strength. You see the humanity of Jesus Christ in that? You see how his prayer doesn't necessarily change the will of God. It was the will of God that he should be afflicted. That's what the Old Testament says in that great hymn in Isaiah. It was the will of the Lord to afflict him. He was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. At just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem those under the law. Jesus had come to accept that. He resigns himself to the will of the Father, and he simply prays, for strength. As I said, if Jesus needed to pray, my friends, you and I likewise need to be people of prayer, particularly in your times of difficulty. So often when we get bad news or something unexpected happens to us, our first reaction is to panic. 
But like Hezekiah taking that letter of Sennacherib up to the temple and laying it out before the Lord, and in particular, like Jesus himself going into the Garden of Gethsemane and pouring it out before the Lord, we need to pray. We need to pray because we are weak. We are weak. Jesus is so much stronger than we are. And if Jesus needed to pray, do we not need to pray? And furthermore, the Apostle Paul says, when we pray, we should pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayer. That's what he means by praying without ceasing. He doesn't mean that every hour, every minute of every day needs to be dedicated to prayer. But it means that we don't just have certain moments when we pray and the rest of the time we live our lives. No, we are always in communication, in communion with our Father, bringing our concerns large and small before him, casting our cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. There's no concern, no matter how great, no matter how small, that God is not willing to hear it. Max Licata, who is a contemporary writer, put it well. He said, our prayers may be awkward, our attempts may be feeble, but since the power of prayer is in the one who hears it and not in the one who says it, our prayers do make a difference. So be encouraged. Go home or go back to your bedroom or wherever you are. I guess you are home. But reread this text. Take off your shoes, as it were. You are standing on holy ground. See that there is one who can sympathize with you in every struggle you have and follow his example. Even if your prayers be halting, even if your prayers be awkward, even if your attempts be feeble, pour out your concerns to the Lord. He will hear. He will give you the strength to persevere, whatever the cup is that you have to drink. And he is mighty to save. Next week, when we come back together, we will take a look at the latter events here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Jesus is going to be arrested. Judas Iscariot is going to lead a company of the temple guards. They are going to cross the Kidron Valley with their temple spears and their torches, and they're going to come into the garden. Judas will betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver with a kiss. That was the price of an average slave in those days, not in a lot of money, believe it or not. And Jesus, Jesus will pass into the hands of his enemies. And from there, uh, dark will surround, darkness will surround the rest of the events until we come to that first day of the week and Easter. But this really is the heart of the gospel message. So we'll take a look at Jesus' betrayal and his arrest and the trials that he stood. Where he had to withstand before the Jewish authorities, the high priests Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and Herod, and ultimately the trial that he stood before the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate. So all of that when we come back together next week. Again, if you have questions, you can send them in via chat, questions about anything pertaining here to the Garden of Gethsemane. Even if you have questions from last week, I, I got a lot of questions this past week from several people about uh, Holy Communion because we took a look at the Last Supper, uh, that meal in which Jesus instituted 
what we call the service of Holy Communion. And we had a lot of questions about that. So if you have concerns, questions, I'll stay on for another five minutes and um, we will go ahead and answer any questions that you may have. Some of them are already coming in. And so one of the questions that has come in is this. In our Bible study, that is a, another Bible study, not this one, we have looked at Ezekiel 36, where the Lord says that he will take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Does flesh here mean weakness too, or more like sensitivity and meekness? Um, in that particular instance, and of course, context is always key, what it means is that take away a heart of stone, that means a dead heart. You've heard of stone cold dead. It means to take away our heart of stone and to give us a heart of flesh. That is something that is living and active. That's what it means in that particular instance. But particularly in the New Testament, when flesh is used by the New Testament writers, Paul speaks of a thorn in his flesh. Jesus says the flesh is weak. Um, what is being referred to there really is weakness. Frailty, humanity. You and I are not eternal beings. Well, we are eternal beings, but what, what I'm saying is we're not infinite beings. We're, we're finite. We're subject to, to, to sickness and death. And, and that's really what it means. It means weakness in that regard. But in that particular instance, in the Old Testament, it's referring to a, a beating heart, a heart of flesh as opposed to a stone cold heart. So something a little different. Context, again, is always important. We got another one coming in, okay. Just hang in there for a second. Okay. This question is, I hope this pertains. Well, before I even read any further, if it doesn't pertain, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm here to answer your questions regardless. But how do you respond to someone who believes that difficulties, illnesses are due to spiritual warfare assaults from the devil? Well, I, I think we have to be um, careful here um, but I do think we can acknowledge the fact that, this, that there are those times when, yes, um, not all sickness, um, one might even go so far as to say the majority of sickness is not necessarily the result of spiritual assaults. Um, you know, the reality is you and I live in a broken and fallen world, and uh, none of us is going to live forever. As I like to say, nobody's getting out of here alive, all right? So I, I've always said that one of the most pitiful people in all of scripture is Lazarus. I mean, Lazarus got sick and he died. Jesus raised him again, but it wasn't raised to immortality. That poor fellow got sick and died again. It's bad enough to die once, let alone die twice. And there's nothing to indicate that that was the result of spiritual warfare. But uh, it's hard to read the book of Job which is the most ancient portion really of the Old Testament, it's hard to read the story of Job and not realize that yes, there are times when we are afflicted, when we are under spiritual assault and that sickness is the consequence of that. You, you'll recall that that's what happened, that the devil came and afflicted this righteous man named Job. The Lord put a hedge of protection around him in the sense that he was not allowed to take Job's life but otherwise, he had free reign with him. Now, that, that, that's very difficult stuff. It's very deep, and we need to go into that at another time. We don't have the time to do it tonight. But it does at least teach us this, that there are times when, yes, some sicknesses, some physical ailments are the result of a spiritual assault. But you have to be very careful about that 
You have to be very discerning about that. And you've got to be very careful not to blame everything that happens to you on the devil. I mean, the reality is this, the devil is a tempter, but much of the misery and quite frankly, much of the illness that we bring on ourselves is the result of our own doing. You certainly can't say if you've been smoking for 40 years and you come down with lung cancer or emphysema or whatever it is, you simply can't say, well, the devil made that happen to me. No, you made that happen to you. But there's no doubt about the fact that there are those times, at least as you read the book of Job, where it does appear as though the devil does assault from time to time. And that's the way Paul describes it. He says, a messenger from Satan was sent to torment me. So it's just one of those things we have to be very careful when we handle it. Um, we have to be very careful that we're studying the scriptures and we're discerning what's really happening here. And remember that in the midst of all of this, God is capable of redeeming the circumstances. It's a great question. All right, I think that's it, folks. Um, so great questions, great concerns. It's great to be with you again. I'm delighted to see you all and uh, hope to see you very soon. So let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. And we thank you for this time that we have spent with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We thank you for the lessons that it teaches us. This is indeed holy ground, and we approach it with reverence and with humility. But it does have practical application for our lives. And so we pray that we may take these lessons and apply them to us that you will take them and apply them to us in such a way that they may bring forth in us the fruit of good living to your glory and honor. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you real soon.